0: I'm Kate Lavelle.
1: And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group.
0: We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems. With more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's become harder than ever to understand the world around us. So we're on a mission to combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom, to connect the dots and answer the so what, and empower you to do the same. This episode of the Canary Group. Today, we're going to be talking about food security.
1: And in food security, I think we're looking a lot at the war in Ukraine and COVID, and how they've impacted food. Um, and we've seen the deterioration in the global system. Is that right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know we are more cognizant than we have been probably uh, m- most of our lives that that the shelves may not be full tomorrow. That global, you know, geopolitical happenings absolutely impact um, our daily lives, I think there's much more awareness for the interconnectedness of it all. COVID especially really kicked off our awareness that you didn't always get 12 different kinds of salad dressing, you didn't always get your almond milk or whatever it is, um, that sometimes there were things Going on where that was not even possible, uh, you know. I think before that, people just kind of saw it as fantasy on The Walking Dead. So, you. Know, so, I right. think it made it it made it very real to those of us in the U.S. and those of us in um, societies that have enough or more than enough um, that that wasn't a guarantee. That's not a promise.
1: It did. It did wake us up. I think to the fragility of the system. And then with the war in Ukraine, uh, and then with the sanctions against Russia, uh, we've seen a larger hit to like the global food situation. And here in the U.S., we're not so, we're we're still somewhat, I think, there's a buffer, yeah. right? We're not so much at the whims of some of these other things, say like in Asia or Latin America or Africa or even parts of Europe. Um, but here in the U.S., we have a very skewed perception, I think, of food. I
0: would agree with that. Yeah,
1: there's some things in. And what would you think would be some things that, you know, for example, you know, we have some unique problems. I mean, we've gone before the First World War, we were predominantly an agrarian society and we have slowly over the over the last century have become more an urban society. Mm -hmm. But what's some of the things that you think that you're seeing now that they're they're striking our urban populations, especially now that we're coming into an age of food insecurity? Like food deserts? Yeah,
0: definitely food deserts. Um, I think that is, that's one that we don't necessarily think of when we think of living in America. You know, and there's a lot of consequences that go with that. When we say food deserts, uh, we, we mean a geographic area where residents, um, they don't have access to affordable, healthy options, you know, fresh proteins, fresh fruits, vegetables. Um, it's not available or, um, It's restricted because of the absence of stores selling it uh, within a convenient traveling distance. And obviously, a convenient traveling distance can mean different things. So in rural areas, um, you know, there's usually no transport or public transportation. You know, everybody does have cars. If you don't have a car, your car is broken down. It becomes a real concern to be able to get to a grocery store. You know, I think Dollar General has really stepped in to try to serve those rural communities, but there's downsides to that, too, which we can get into as far as just the price and, again, access. Um, yeah,
1: that's a misnomer. Yeah, right? it's not a dollar. It's not a dollar. <laughs> a dollar.
0: Nothing, nothing in Dollar General is a dollar. But then in urban areas and, and suburban areas, you may have public transportation, which sort of gets you closer Um, you're also then limited by what you can bring, um, you know, how many groceries you can buy at one time, you know, and, and it, it's usually, I I believe that a food desert in an urban area is considered, um, more than a mile away from a grocery store for those who do not own a car. I would say that's definitely in an urban area because nothing is a mile away in a rural area. Um, everything is 20 miles away or more. So, you know, I think it's, you know, one of the statistics that I saw recently was 2.2% of the entire U.S. lives more than a mile from a grocery store and does not own a car. Those people are not going to the grocery store to get their food. You know, when you look at what is available, then it's convenience stores, uh, typically not a huge selection of fresh fresh produce, you know, or fresh protein. Uh, the prices are higher you know when there are bananas and apples, they're sold individually again at a higher price than you would normally pay for an apple or banana. Um, a lot of the food is loaded with preservatives because preservatives last um, you know and with a with a lower shelf turnover you're that's something that that folks running convenience stores are are all about um. So you're dealing with higher prices, less healthy foods. Um, you know, there's also the the benefit of, you know, super high fat, high salt, high sugar um deliciousness of foods, you know, that that people if they only have a little bit of money, they may not want to spend a whole bunch on, you know, really high quality ingredients and then have to go prepare it. It may just be easier to save some change. And buy, um, you know, high fat, uh, high sugar, high salt foods. So it's this sort of it's this vicious cycle where people are. Oh, the other the other one that people, you know, the other option that people have who live in food deserts. Um, and I don't want to pass this up is fast food. Fast food, you can you can locate a fast food restaurant, just about anywhere in the U S. and they do booming business in food deserts. Um, they offer affordable options, even with inflation, uh, the price has gone up, but it's still more affordable than anything else. Um, it's fast. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it travels as well. Um, and, uh, it's, really high in fat, high in calories, which, you know, I think, while a lot of people would say that's not a good thing. Here's the thing. If you're hungry, if you don't know when your next meal is, you're not looking to like, cut carbs and go lean. Um, you're looking to pack as as much caloric value into a meal as you possibly can.
1: Uh we you and I both had a mutual friend uh, who worked for the q s r quick service restaurant industry and he talked a lot about how uh lower income and homeless people depended upon certain foodstuffs and he also talked about i think coffee i mm-hmm. uh, said homeless people would buy a large coffee and how it was affordable for them, but then they would pack in as much cream and sugar in order to get the caloric output uh intake so they, they could they could Survive for a day. Plus, if it's a if it's a cold climate, you want that hot coffee to get you going. Uh, and I always thought that was very interesting.
0: Yeah, so I think you know we we may look at fast food restaurants as the the enemy, but they serve a purpose, especially for people living in food deserts where you know they may not necessarily have the financial security to be able to own a car to go buy a whole trunk load of groceries, um, to be able to pay for a whole trunk load of groceries at one time, it may be more piecemeal that they can afford a few things here and there. Again, that drives them towards a convenience store where everything is a little bit pricier, but it's convenient. And then you're looking at foods that are not as good for you. Um, You know, I think one of the very unique things about being American now is that we have, we have the health consequences of, one might say, having too much. So we have the, the health outcomes that are related to uh, too much fat, too much sugar, too many calories. So a lot of the, the concerns for Americans today, it's type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other diet-related conditions affecting the general population so this has very real consequences it is you know shortening um, the average lifespan for americans in a way that you know is completely counter to that that which you might find in a different country in the middle east or in africa Um, not to say one is better than the other but talk about totally different problems
1: it seems like a vicious it seems like a vicious cycle, uh, and especially now that we're starting to see you know rises in prices and that rise in price is hitting food, and that's what's causing a lot of people to have to make decisions and choices. Um, and if you don't have as many choices if you're living in an urban area and you're having fewer and future fewer choices, you're probably not going to be shopping at a Whole Foods. And the kind of rest, the kind of businesses that are going to be servicing the communities, are going to be really different and they're not going to have the same level. And plus, I think human, it's human nature, not to be, I'm not saying we're like we're being indulgent, but it's human nature for us to, to eat the things that are delicious. Absolutely. So things that we like, right? And those things. And, you know, <laughs> I call and that joy. versus a <laughs> I You're call
0: like- that joy. <laughs>
1: Right, but it's like we have to eat our broccoli, but we prefer the donut.
0: And you if know, you are that. stressed and if you are, you know, if you're concerned about, you know, not wanting to spend too much money, going to, you know, a McDonald's, going to a Chick-fil-A, going to a Taco Bell, that is going to give you less stress because it costs less. It's accessible and available and it's also delicious and comforting.
1: Right. And people don't really necessarily, though, have the time or the inclination. Um, you know, people too are probably working harder to try to just to make the same level of income as yes. they were making X amount of years ago. Uh, they tell, and they're under the stress, and they don't really feel that they can. They have the time or the inclination to make uh, healthy choices or eat healthy meals. One of my Scottish friends. I mean, he used to make his decisions. I think it was mass and value. He would hold up something and say, yeah, this feels like I'm getting my money's worth. And I was like, how does it taste? And that was kind of like a third or fourth order of, of importance. Uh, and then that was back, you know, a number of years ago. But now I have to think a lot of people have to be thinking about that too. You know, if I'm getting X amount of chicken nuggets or if I'm getting X amount of french fries or X amount of this or X amount of that, you feel like you're getting an immediate value and it tastes good. Of course, it's not doing anything for your blood pressure or your,
0: you know i th- i think with with food that is affordable with food that is fast with food that is convenient um you're not worried about the health consequences of tomorrow you're worried about you know getting food in your system as quickly as possible today um and not breaking the bank doing that and i think this gets to one thing that you know while we certainly focus on sort of the sociopolitical level of things Food is intensely personal. You know, food is, food says so much about identity. It says so much about, you know, group membership, control. Uh, we're going to get into this a little bit deeper in a minute, but, you know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the foundational layer of that pyramid, food's on that list. It's critical to survival. So it's not just something that is you know, something that you can sort of identify yourself with. It's not a signifier necessarily, or it is, but it's also core to survival. When we have these inequities within our own country, and you have people who have more than enough and people who don't have enough, it's, it's interesting to see the dynamic of food uh, and how that plays out and how that can be used and leveraged. Um, so we're going to go a little bit further into that as well. Certainly, if we just stay on food deserts for one more second, this is a very real problem in the U.S. You know, if you look at major cities, three quarters of a million people in New York City live in a food desert. Half a million people in Chicago live in a food desert. I, I don't have good statistics on rural areas, but this is a very legitimate concern that is... Uh, impacting our relationship with food. It's also impacting now that we have food insecurity or or the threat of food insecurity. You'll see that actually sort of push the haves and have-nots even further apart.
1: Uh, Well, the one thing too is that as more and more more people's income is having to go toward food, um, and that's raising greater pressures for those people and putting them under greater stresses. Um, and therefore, it, and it is, uh, you talked about it being social control. If people are more worried about food, they probably have less time to be worrying about other things. Mm-hmm. So I guess if you were in a position of power, you're sort of thinking to yourself, well, maybe you know these people aren't going to be protesting as much about other things. But I would point out and say, you know, the inequity, uh, especially when it comes to food distribution historically, is one of the precursors toward... Social uh, stresses mm-hmm. that ultimately can lead to you know a lot of instability and also to in, in extreme cases to revolution. I mean, the French Revolution was based on food, mm-hmm. and you saw in Egypt was based on food. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's something that people have to look at and say, you know, this is a serious problem.
0: Absolutely. Well, before we get into sort of the elements of control and power and how how food relates to to those. Um, would you tell us a little bit more about what food security looks like globally?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'm using that word. Absolutely. I tried not to use that as much as I did
0: last We time, have an absolutely the, jar yeah, now. We're both putting, we're both putting a nickel in the absolutely jar.
1: And then we get to fly somewhere if we make enough money in that.
0: Yeah. Uh, Give us like two more episodes.
1: I would say globally. It's, it's much the same thing. The United States, on one hand has the advantages that we still produce a lot of our own foods right mm-hmm. uh, but we're but we still feel those t- those inflationary pressures we may get out of that inflationary cycle sooner than the rest of the world um, Europe in itself has can produce a lot of its own food and it has deeper pockets so it can buy what it doesn't need one of the things that ties globally into food is also
0: by what it doesn't make
1: uh, I can with, yeah, or what it can't grow at the certain season. One of the concerns going into the winter, I think, from this past year, was that with uh, the lack of Russian energy, and energy ties in, I think, with a lot mm-hmm. of it's sort of like a uh, it's it's kind of in the race with food, you know, uh, food insecurity and energy insecurity both kind of they feed into each other. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Uh, but with one of the concerns was is that the uh, the winter. The winter uh, growing uh, greenhouse season would be impacted by uh, impacts to energy for gas. Uh, it turned out that it didn't, wasn't as big of an impact because they had a relatively mild, mild winter and they were able to find uh, alternate sources of energy for Europe. What concerns people though is that how do you continue that cycle? So Europe has got to find a, it's got, Europe has got to find, I think, a more dependable and consistent uh, system of getting energy and then that will help to maintain, I think their food uh, their food system in place. But there are overall rises. that's one of the biggest complaints in Europe has been the rise of food. and that's why you've seen, yes, I mean a lot of things that have been going on in France, the rioting you've been seeing have been other things, but the core underlying is the fact that food and energy prices are what are driving a lot of the, uh, a lot of the concerns, a lot of the, the anxieties mm-hmm. that putting people on the streets. Uh, And that is then fueling other anxieties. And that's usually how these things go. Food is usually the the first domino (laughs) that pushes other things over. Uh, But you're also seeing uh, food prices in all the major European countries. And the governments are finding different ways to kind of deal with that. Uh, But if you have a, I would say that if you have a system that has got access to food, or at least is part of a, say, if you're part of the Central European plane, you're going to be getting you're able to work together as an EU bloc and get your food better ways. England is outside of this, and I think that that's going to be a major problem for England. England has got to find a new place to go uh, to be part of this. So I would be concerned about you know, what's going on with the UK. It's not just being outside of the trade system. It's also being outside of the food system and the, and the energy systems. Um, with the Ukraine being knocked out and with Russia being knocked out because of sanctions and Ukraine because of the war, Uh, you're seeing a tremendous (laughs) – you're seeing a lot of foods that are being taken off the system. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that Russia and Ukraine, they were both like the world's largest exporters of produce and cereals. And I think think it was like one-fifth of the world's global cereal production has pretty much been decreased. uh, And you're going to start seeing a spillover effect. So that's just going to reason. Because there's nobody who can really then – Move into that that vacuum yet, and we had talked in our last episode about Brazil uh, and possibly we were hoping for like the this experiment where they're trying a tropicalized wheat. But the other thing too with the knockout of Russia has been uh, a major you know, potash. Belarus and Russia were major producers of potash and also of nitrates. So we've seen a and you need those for for
0: healthy fertilizer.
1: Yeah, yeah, and f- without fertilizers. There's a lot of crop, a lot of crop growing areas, like for example, Europe, Africa, Asia, that now will have reduced yields. And those reduced yields means you have to put more energy into trying to get the same amount of food for other ways. So maybe you have to expand the number of, of fields, and that means you have less money than to spend on other things. And that's also that knock-on effect. So
0: and that means prices go up when it takes more energy to make yes. a potato. The price of that potato has to go up because it costs more to make.
1: Absolutely. it. You know. Absolutely, and, and there's there's that word again. So another penny in the jar. Uh, but it's also the other thing too is the fact that the energy prices go. Energy prices are going up, so it costs more to move that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so you there may be an abundance of wheat in this area, and this area needs you know that wheat. But how do you move it? and with sanctions on russia uh, there's a tremendous impact on the, the ability to move uh that foodstuffs to places so india and china may want to buy it but there's uh there's a finite number of rail space and it can't really travel that much by sea because now <laughs> because of the war it impacts it's impacted where you can sail how big the ships are uh, the black sea and the baltic are are have been very limited now by the war Uh, And so those have an unintended uh, consequence now that we've knocked all of these things off the global market, and it means other people have to step up. With Ukraine, we saw with sunflower oil, Mm -hmm. the unintended consequence of of healthy eating in the first world is we've turned away from polyunsaturated fats and moved toward healthier things like sunflower oil. But now sunflower oil is at a premium because it's been knocked off because of the war. Mm -hmm. So then we have to turn to something like palm oil. But then you saw, or I think earlier this year or last year, you saw, I think Indonesia had a major, uh, they, they made some, they had some concerns. And so they limited the export of palm oil. And that had a far reaching effect on a whole bunch of other foodstuffs globally.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and, and that's what we're going to be seeing probably for the next, you know, two to five years is just this constant turmoil, this churn globally with food.
0: Absolutely. And <laughs> so, I, I, I there's also the additional spillover effect of, you know, not just prices going up, um, the access to food becomes less safe um, at higher value. There's more pressure on, on capitalizing on it. It becomes less safe. Additionally, when you have areas where there is no food, you push people towards where there is food which typically means you're pushing people towards conflict zones, not away from them. So the world becomes a less safe place. Right now, we're looking at a significant level of hunger. So the, the World Food Program, they said that 24,000 people are dying from hunger every day globally. I mean, 24,000 people every day. Nearly 800 million people are undernourished every day. Um, that is that is a, a stat from the UN. So people are dealing with this. It's very real. And when you see these shifts of increased prices, increased value into food products, less availability, people needing to go somewhere where they can access food means going towards conflict zones. Uh, that becomes a really, really sort of dynamic atmosphere where terrible things can happen and so i i do think that you know just as energy sort of is is part and parcel of this conversation um just global security is as well if we don't have enough food you know that's when people start acting badly i would say
1: well food becomes a weapon too exactly I mean, if you have food you can try to use it it, it, you start the weaponization of food to try to get your neighbors or other people to do what you want to do. Uh, that's what we were trying to do somewhat with North Korea. We were trying to use it as a, uh, as a negotiation tool yeah. with, with North Korea. And the North Korea ended up using just going to China and Russia to try to get around those types of things. But you're absolutely right because we're seeing these cracks in the global system um, and they're being fed more and more. It's pushing countries. After COVID, the main lesson that people got was we can't rely upon this extended global system to supply these things. We have to make a lot more ourselves. So you're seeing reshoring and reindustrialization, And that's pulling out of countries that were sort of trying to get into the industrialized world and try to join the global market. And I feel like a lot of those countries are missing out. If they didn't have a foot already in, they're not going to come in. And therefore they have to... They have to sort of like get into a into a school of fish, and they have to their countries have to work with other countries to try to find ways to trade and barter and find what's important. But more and more, if you're in North America or you're in the EU or you're in some parts of Asia, uh, this past week you just saw a major. I think you saw the UK sign a major uh, security agreement in Asia, which with I think with uh, South Korea and Japan and whatnot. But that will also have economic. Uh, Benefits and you're seeing these lines that are being drawn. So the question is like, who's on the outside and who's on the inside? Which blocks are going to have you know, better access to food and who are more self-sufficient? I mean, for us, luckily, I mean, we do have more potential. I think for things going our way, uh, but that doesn't make me feel good about the rest of the world. And I look at that and I say to myself that there's going to be more squabbling over resources, water, more squabbling over fertilizer. Because you need that now for food, uh, and, and whereas we were probably more dismissive, we had gotten to a point. I think prior to twenty nineteen, we started getting to a point where we started we discounted disease, we discounted famine, <laughs> we didn't think war was really possible. And then right after COVID, now we have all of these things kind of staring us in the face the the, the four horsemen of the, the post COVID apocalypse, and so.
0: And I I think too, it's you know we are seeing that isolationism rear its ugly head again. So, you know, while there's certainly, as we talked about in our last episode, there are benefits to isolationism and to taking care of your own. Um, we are not in a position globally to necessarily, there isn't one country that has it all. We're probably the closest, I would say, um, the US, or at least one of the closest to being able to be fully self-sufficient. And yet there is no country that is currently really able to thrive without leaning on other markets. And that is, that is why it's so important to care about what's going on, why we should care about, you know, Ukraine, why we should care about Russia and, you know, what they are not able to produce, because it will definitely have an impact on us. You know, and I, I do think it's great that the U.S., we, you know, we've got tons of produce that, that we both, um, you know, use in our own country as well as export. A statistic from like a thousand years ago is and as a native Californian, I'm very proud of this. You know, so this statistic is easily 20 years old. So go with me. We produce roughly uh, one fifth. California produces. I'm not even in California anymore. It's not we. They produce one fifth of the nation's produce. That's massive. That is one state that's able to provide one-fifth of the nation's produce. Um, You know, we also have tons of farmland, even though we are certainly an urbanized culture as a whole. uh, We have a huge agricultural component. One thing that I I do think is really important to sort of stop and note about what makes the U.S. uh, so unique is how early industrialization came, how much it really substantively changed our culture. It also really changed our relationship with food. It is, you know, when we talk about sort of first world problems, you know, having too much. we, We talk through what those problems look like as far as the health consequences. There's also, you know, we have the luxury I say this as a very proud independent woman, mom of two. It is a luxury to be able to have parents outside the home working and not having to worry about foraging and gathering, um, not having to spend all day trying to to mill down wheat to be able to make flour. Um, I'm not even sure if that's exactly how it works, but but all of well, that.
1: You, you separate the wheat, and the chaff, and then there you know go. It, so okay.
0: But to not necessarily, we have had a very long stretch of not, ne- of not having to have at least one parent home worrying about food for the majority of the day. You know, that's a, that's a right. big deal.
1: Well, that sort of ties, though, into, I think, the changes of demographics and, I think, and also, I think, of the economics. And in the immediate post-World War II world here in the United States, where we had a Huge number of people who are coming in born out of the war, um, and you know we suddenly had this very large population that's and we've become more of an urban population that's just where it is, but things are sort of demographically changing, and you know what our children and grandchildren will see is is very different, I think as far as with the norms of you know where people fit and what they'll be able to do. It's very possible, I mean, who knows there could be an agrarian revolution here in the United States and people returning back to the youth the farms and maybe, we're
0: seeing that with Covid uh, a lot of people who could afford to moved out of urban areas and started you know basically creating small farms, um getting into agricultural um professions and becoming um chicken farmers becoming well, just farmers in general, but I know a few folks who decided they were gonna. Leave their corporate jobs and become chicken farmers, Um, like big, big mass, like real, real chicken farmers. But so again,
1: but you raise chickens? I I
0: do, but my chickens are family. It's a very large family. They all have names. (laughs) We do eat the eggs, but we try not to eat family around here. You know, it's a it's a good life goal. Well, there may
1: be something here too to talk about because the return back to here, we've gone back overseas, but now we're coming back to the US, is talking about, I think, perceptions of food. And there are a lot of people who, we've talked about people who are at the lower economic, socioeconomic scale, but then we have people who are at the, at the, the other end who think that they're living healthier by living through organics. They think that they're helping the earth by buying certain types of foods. But in some ways, isn't there more resources? I was reading some things on the number of resources it costs, or in order to be able to be limited as organic, it's actually quite expensive, right? The, and it adds the a lot footprint
0: of, price. of right. making an organic product is significant. But even in, and and this is something that we'll get to in a minute. But just the labeling of organic is extremely pricey. You have to pay to get this certification and to be able to label things organic. Um, It costs an arm and a leg, and if you go to any farmer's market, you will find at least, you know, a handful of folks there with booths who will tell you this is organic, but I can't afford to label it as such. We follow all the right practices, we meet all the criteria, but it's not something that's doable right now to pay to get the labeling. So, you know, take our word for it.
1: You had mentioned something to me earlier about eggs too. And I thought that was absolutely amazing. Something hilarious. You said that oh, there was Lord. A, there were, someone was marketing a kind of an egg. Yeah. Let me sort of really, let me just you know. pull up
0: my soapbox. <laughs> Here it comes. Okay. Climbing aboard. So it turns out, and I don't think that I even realized this until Michael and I started talking about this show was uh, I have very, very passionate feelings about eggs and chickens. Who knew? um you learn more about yourself every day but what makes me insane uh what drives me really over the edge is the whole like the health claims around eggs so uh i was at the grocery store recently and there was i can't remember if it was net zero or net negative eggs so you're going to pay a premium on eggs that are already i mean we saw inflation with eggs you're gonna pay a premium on eggs because they're supposedly net neutral or net negative. Um, that just blows my mind. I mean, the luxury of being able to do that. I don't think that people who are starving are worried about the, the economic impact of of their eggs. Granted, it's great to care about the environment. I I am an avid, Uh, environmentalist at the same time it seems absurd to be paying for this Um, you know I don't know that chickens are necessarily making any more of a a negative impact on the environment than the beef you're eating Um, you know or even even the cheese that you're eating the one that though is truly a bridge too far for me the one that just completely tips me over the edge is, uh, the vegetarian egg and the vegetarian chicken. Okay. I've got, I've got some groundbreaking news for you. Chickens, not vegetarian. They're not vegetarian. The early bird gets the worm. They eat protein all day, every day. They love their bugs. Um, they do eat meat. And their bodies are meant to process it. Uh, it's totally normal. So when people are again paying a premium for vegetarian chicken and vegetarian eggs, all I can think of is some severely unhealthy chickens. Um, you know, the, the, it takes a lot of protein to make an egg. I mean, if you think about eggs being all protein, imagine consuming enough protein to be able to pop out an egg every day. That's a lot of protein. They need to get, uh, not only their leafy greens, but also protein. Um, and so they eat a lot of bugs. I don't know why on earth you would want to buy a vegetarian chicken or vegetarian egg. It just, I, it boggles the mind. I'm going to step down from my soapbox now, but thank you for letting me get that out. I do feel a little bit better. Um, <sighs> I appreciate th- you, well, you were here for to me. Talk about. Yeah, I ha- I really had I was to. There
1: for you, there for you, and the chickens.
0: Thank you, so. thank you. Well,
1: the, the, another topic, and I think it, it ties into both, uh, is also too about global supply and, and food. Is the fact also too of how much weather and also I think disease also impacts a lot of things. Absolutely. If we have uh, Ooh,
0: five last in the
1: year, jar. <laughs> we had a hot. Well, there we go. Uh, last year we had a very hot summer that had impacted wheat uh, being grown in India. We've had a number of uh, swine and avian flus. I think we have another one that's basically one that's happening right now. So
0: there are there is both a swine flu and an avian flu that are looking particularly nasty this this season.
1: Yeah, uh, and that's that will get in later to talk about the social control, scarcity, and whatnot, and talking about food control and fear. But one of the big things was a number of years ago. I mean, pork was a very big part of the Chinese diet. Um, it, it's, a, it's one of the big supplements for, you know, for protein. They had a major swine flu. They had to cull through their stocks. Uh, and that forced China to have to look for other avenues of food, which put increased pressures. So, if you, mad cow disease, that's mm-hmm. actually, that was when, was that back more in the late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah. Something?
0: I mean, it seems like, it, it seems it like pro- last year to us Gen Xers, but yeah, I think it was like 20 years ago. <laughs>
1: But it was just yesterday. Um, but it was like that's a thing that had major impacts and led those also to there's political considerations because I remember in Japan when I was living there, um, you know, Mad Cow gave it, it. It scared the Japanese away from you know buying beef from mm-hmm. a lot of foreign sources. But it then became a sort of a nationalization that they started replacing it with more homegrown, mm-hmm. uh, more expensive but homegrown alternatives. Um, And I think that the same thing, too, is that you could see that with pork, chicken, beef, a number of other proteins. Uh, But if also if you're having weather issues that are impacting too much rain, not enough rain, uh, oh my gosh. I mean, if if you want to meet somebody who's not an optimist, meet a farmer. Mm -hmm. Um, I live in the Midwest right now, and it seems that everybody around here has that Midwest farmer mentality. They're just waiting for the next disaster to come. But those are the things that impact uh, and 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 farmers have to look very much on that that year. You know what's happening month to month in that year about growing. And it's such a my gosh! I'm surprised. I'm surprised any of them don't have. Uh, they're not, every single one of them doesn't have ulcers. But but those are some of the big impacts.
0: Yeah, I'm a beekeeper, um, and I love my bees. But I tell anybody who's interested in getting into it that you know it's a great hobby if you love being constantly anxious and disappointed. It's fantastic for that. Because everything will be going great. Your hive looks like it's going to just produce so much honey. And then you go out there and, you know, the the county has come and sprayed the side of the roads with pesticides and all of your bees are dead. This happened to me. I had my bees in this really lovely vineyard and it was great because we got to exchange honey for wine. So I was there for it. Came out one day after, you know, we were ready to harvest. It looked like it was going to be just an amazing year every single bee completely just dead in all of the hives it's too bad because things can shift like that you know bees i think are really a bellwether of um the climate you know we see you know everyone's heard about you know you got to save the bees what does that mean it is not only you know pesticides certainly play a major role but when you have extreme wet when you have extreme cold when you have extreme heat all of these things impact our ecosystem and so farmers are left you know worrying about you know what the next disease will be what the next season will be you know and they don't have a lot of plan b's and c's so you see a number you know there's certainly at least in the us and and i believe in europe there's a number of subsidies for farmers and this seems like fat uh you know on bills that why do they get these subsidies? They get these subsidies because they are basically the cornerstone of our survival. It is no longer possible really, to successfully have a mom-and-pop dairy operation, a mom-and-pop egg operation, um, you know, mm. even a mom-and-pop uh, you know meat op- operation, or even vegetables. Um, you might be able to have sort of a specialty offering. And that can help raise your prices a little bit. But for the most part, factory farming has taken over the U.S. Um, And there's all sorts of sort of nefarious practices that these companies have used from, you know, bioengineering and patenting um, specific seeds that are disease resistant. However, those seeds then, if they blow onto a neighboring property suddenly they're violating a patent um, and those farmers next door can be sued for never having planted but somehow having this you know stock of corn um, grow on their land Uh, there's also being able to control the prices if you have enough share of you know eggs you can say here's what the prices are to the point where a mom-and-pop farm cannot compete with you um you know you also if you are practicing monoculture like many of these factory farms do uh you're basically stripping all the nutrients out of soils if you're not doing regular crop rotation if you're not trying to you know pay a lot of attention to the ecosystem that you are maintaining and that you're responsible for um the f- factory farming basically you know you plant corn one you know one season it sucks up all of the the nutrients that corn loves. So if you go to plant corn there again, there's fewer nutrients. And then if you plant corn there again, there's even fewer nutrients to the point where corn's not going to grow there. And so right. that... and
1: you need more... So you need more fertilizer. So you to need more fertilizer. That, right? Which puts pressures on for fertilizer, right? And doesn't corn actually... And corn actually has a lot more it it, it 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 needs a lot more from the soil say from like
0: wheat milk, yes yeah right absolutely yeah and
1: plus <laughs> and we also using we're still using ethanol you know that's a leftover from like the, the 70s and the 80s but now it's something we can't kill but we use ethanol in mm-hmm. our fuel so we have corn subsidies I'm just reading I, I don't know where i don't know what direction to go to there's so many things to talk about with corn but it's like with, Ukraine was one of the largest non-GMO corn producers in the world, and now that's been knocked off. The U.S., on the other hand, is one of the largest corn producers, but it's mostly GMO, genetically, yep. uh, gen- uh, genetically modified. Uh, but uh, most of the corn we're making is for industrial uses,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and there's a lot of politics in how we grow these things. And you see the same thing in Brazil, except this was sugarcane, mm-hmm. which is even worse yep. for the soil, and then I, mean, I don't know if you've ever, if anyone's ever here been to Brazil, but it's like they, because they add sugar to to their <laughs> oil to their gasoline, everything smells sweet. I mean, it's a different smell. Uh-huh. You know, when you're in a Brazilian city, so it's like you know a cotton candy machine just driving by. You know, I don't know. Maybe that's a bad analogy. That's that's been, fascinating. That's,
0: I didn't realize that.
1: But that's just the politics of you know of of helping to to let things go further, right? You know, we're
0: it out a little here, bit and more. Can, yeah,
1: right. Stretch it out. Uh, but there's there's a lot of politics that's involved here. But we're all at the end, though. We're all at the mercies of things that we can't control. at right? The we're of of weather, of disease. You worked
0: for the CDC, yes,
1: a number of years yeah. ago. Okay, and not on the disease side, but you disease. We're, we're actually, what actually? So did you do for
0: the I CDC? was in um, immunizations and respiratory diseases. Uh, so we did a lot of flus. Um, Including avian and swine, one of one of the things that I've been thinking quite a bit about, and hopefully we can just go down this rabbit hole now. But one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is with inflation, a lot of people are deciding they want to stick their toe in the water of being gentlemen and gentle lady and gentle whomever farmers and getting chickens, and so ordinances are being changed to let more chickens into neighborhoods. Um, Still not the roosters, because the roosters are loud. Um, and fun fact, roosters don't just crow in the morning. They crow 24 hours a day. So they are loud. I love them. I love my roos. But uh, when you think about, you know, we've, we see around here, there's now preschools that are, they have their own school chickens. And so they can teach kids about eggs. And this is, I, I love it. As someone who loves farms, it brings me joy. The challenge is that, you know, as we saw with COVID, we are globalized. People are flying all over the world all the time, uh, which makes it easy for disease to travel. One of the reasons why we've seen so many of the zoonotic or animal-borne diseases that mutate to affect humans come out of China is they have a lot of animals in close proximity to one another. So it's very easy to both mutate and spread. You know, so when you think about their meat markets, um, I think are they called wet markets?
1: Uh wet markets are where they're actually cutting up fish and fowl and meat and like live there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's
1: uh, that's what everyone suspected that was where the original suspected in Wuhan, but they thought that's where it
0: yeah. originated. Who knows? But so it's very easy for disease to spread animal to animal. If you start adding chickens to urban environments where there's a lot of animals in close proximity, I do worry about the spread of disease. And with that, you know, then you have this sort of compounded factor of not only do we travel globally constantly, but now we have even more animals in close proximity what does what does that do as far as our health and safety? Just something that I don't know the answer. It certainly I can't not think about it when I see a, a preschool with chickens.
1: To go back to COVID, it was this particular. I mean, I mean each pandemic is its own thing, but this past pandemic, uh, it, it did target people who the biggest group that seemed to be have the. At the People with comorbidities, with a type two diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, obesity—those uh, were the people who seem to be most at risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and that ties into the fact that probably a lot of these people are going through food choices or food availability, and that just sort of sets you up for. It should be a it should be a wake up call for people to look at these things and say, you know, food is an important part. Uh, Little known fact, but I mean, Otto von Bismarck was probably the original, you know, he, he was the original gangster, the OG when it came to all these things because he saw that for a country's health, you had to be able to control diet, health, exercise, and he had pushed all of these ideas of a centralized health system, you know, uh, exercise for urban youth, um, uh, you know, trying to come up for better diet for people. I mean, who thought this, this reactionary Prussian could be so progressive? But, but that's, you know, People, I think, have recognized at some level that these things are all interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that food, but now that food is now becoming more important. It's funny, when times were good, people became discovered food as a hobby, you know, foodies and going off and seeing things. But now that food is becoming more of a resource again, I think that we'll probably be looking at, you know, less variety and people are going to have to be, you know, more careful about what they consume. And,
0: and more you know, creative. I don't, I don't think
1: we're going, hopefully, right, hopefully we're not going back to like rationing and to like a Stalinist kind of like, you know, kind of system. But those are some things that people have to start thinking about the future.
0: We've seen these things. Um, Ketchum just did some, some trends research where they uncovered that there is, um, among Gen Zers, a trend towards tinned fish, as they're calling it. Um, I would call it canned. It's canned tuna. But it is now sort of the chic thing instead of the charcuterie board to have like a tinned array of different kinds of seafood. Um, And they're finding it's sort of this, you know, it's a nod to the fact that food is pricier. And so you're looking for options that are hopefully more affordable, but making it kind of trendy and glamorous at the same time. So you have all these, you know, nicely labeled tinned Fish and tinned, you know, like tinned oysters and sardines and all this stuff. And it's like the new craze. Uh, I think that's fascinating that this is like they've discovered, you know, Gen Z, they discover all these things and it's not like they were there before, but they've discovered tinned fish. Um, and now that is a way that they're showing their, their indulgence in their identity, but it's more economical. And I just think that that's brilliant.
1: Well, my wife is uh, Japanese and so my daughter, and we eat in our house uh, at least once a week. We usually will have uh, steamed rice and tinned fish. I'm putting air quotes around <laughs> that. I mean, that's what I'm going to call it now. Uh, but usually sardines or mackerel and then miso soup and Japanese pickles once a week. And that to us was like, considered to be like just one of our standards. But now I'm going to look at ourselves as being you know, trendy. You are cool very
0: trendy. Up. Yes. You um, are cutting edge. So
1: that's it. I'm feeling really good about that. By the way, if you could just explain to our audience, who is, what's Ketchum? You just mentioned.
0: Oh, yeah. Ketchum so Ketchum is a communications consultancy that I work for. Okay. Um, I just want to make sure that we're giving them credit for their amazing trends research that they did. Um, I got such a hoot out of the tinned fish. It's been on my mind ever since. Yeah, it's, it, we we are not, well, I should say this, tinned fish is eaten in this household. Um. Unless it's tuna, it's just not eaten by me. I just can't. I can't. I can't get behind it. But I really do appreciate the you know how Gen Z has embraced the tinned fish. More power to them.
1: It's just too too trendy.
0: It's. I'm just one not. Yeah, also, not cool enough.
1: It's, it's perfectly okay. Uh, there's <laughs> we one can't thing all that we talked about earlier. <laughs> Oh no, no! I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not. So <laughs> I that
0: It's
1: when you discover. It's when you discover that you you inadvertently. There should be a word for that, where you inadvertently become cool, uh, and with no right. It's like you know, you're just sort of like, oh, you know, you accidentally find yourself uh, awesome. Being, you know, cool, and have you.
0: Know. Yeah. And
1: don't worry. You'll soon. You'll you'll get out. You'll step out of it just as quickly. Yeah. Something that we were talking about earlier, not today, but you and I were talking about this. We were talking about how. Uh, food, though, is also being used for control. We, we had mm. mentioned a little bit about, like, for for politics. But another thing, too, I mean, you had talked uh, about, I think you were talking about Black Hawk Down in mm-hmm. Somalia. You and I had talked about that. And I was also talking about, we talked about Band-Aid, which was like a, an 80s um, mm-hmm. you know, t- to try to help people, I think, on the Horn of Africa. Uh, but they were for two separate reasons. You know, I, Well, actually it was about food being used for control by warlords to basically starve out certain groups. Mm-hmm. And the perception in the West was that the, these people didn't have food. So we're, I think it was like a very Marie Antoinette. You know, if they don't have food, we'll just send them food. Yeah, we'll without send Without realizing that the food yeah. wasn't going Yeah, right, we'll get some cake. But it wasn't getting there. It was being held up by groups that controlled the ports or groups that were trying to use food as a weapon to starve out political or ethnic opponents.
0: Yeah, basically um, saying if, if you are not going to go along and sort of join our cause or you know, fall into our our militia, what have you, then you're going to starve because we're going to use the guns that we have and the power that we have to prevent you from eating and talk about control. That's, that's about as, as severe as it can get. Um, People are starving and so they will do what they have to do to survive. So even though the UN and other aid organizations were dumping lots of food into these communities, uh, it, if anything, only exacerbated the problem. Um, so right. certainly, you know, Black Hawk down is a very, um, you know, Somalia, that's a, it's a very ex, I'd say visceral example. Um, you know, it's just heartbreaking to see it. But it really, food is about control. Um, so from a cultural perspective and an economic perspective, in, in countries that have more than enough um the control is there it looks very different so uh, you have people who are going to pay more for for gmo free for organic um because it's 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 a signifier of group membership um that you you know that you lead and you put your money where your mouth is and, and, you know, you care about the environment, you care about, you know, the animal welfare. Um, So in a way there's this, there's this extra desirable group you can join by spending additional money. It's a sales tactic. And, you know, there's, there's lobbying groups that literally spend millions, if not more every year, Um, controlling labeling and making sure that that labeling is um, working to their benefit. So, you know, what does it what criteria does something have to attain to be able to get labeled organic? If you play with those rules and work them in your favor, that can turn out to be extremely profitable for you. If they don't fall in your favor, um, you know, certainly we've seen some some. Fast food restaurants fight very hard against the high fat, sugar, salt labeling, especially in Europe where they, you know, they love a good label. And so they will label something as, you know, dramatically unhealthy. That is extremely problematic for these companies. They spend money to fight against that. Um, So you see it both as sort of a good thing of organic um, as well as a really toxic thing where it's about it's about driving driving profit. Then so so that is sort of con- the control um you know and the the fear on a cultural level of you should fear <clears throat> gmos. You should fear you know this this type of oil that's in here. You should feel you, you should fear this chemical. All of that is to try to again, drive profits away from something and towards something else. Um, but it's also a way to uh, then create the unattainable. So, uh, you know, you, you saw in the early 90s, uh, we're definitely showing our Gen, our Gen X colors today. But in the early 90s, you saw the waif thin supermodels. It is a luxury to be able to say that your um, aspirational body type can say no to food. You don't find people in countries that don't have enough food necessarily worshiping a starving physique. Um, It is truly a luxury to be able to do that. So. All of this, you know, it's about identity, it's about control, it's about leveraging fear for profit. That then is sort of part and parcel talking about stockpiling. Um, Because again, that fear, the scarcity. So, you know, in the US, we certainly saw with COVID, people ran out to buy way more toilet paper than they need. People were were very much pushing to, um, you know, just taking everything off the shelves. That was fear-based. Nobody necessarily needed to do that. When you do that, there are some unintended consequences that really do separate the haves and the have-nots even further. People who do not have enough cannot afford to stockpile. So they don't have the money to go and buy more than they need right now. Then when they do need it and other people have already stockpiled it, It costs more because there's not a lot of it left. And so yet again, they have a harder time getting what they need. It's going to be a higher price if they can even find it. So when people stockpile, it only further separates the haves and the have-nots because the haves can afford to to sort of, you know, get too much right now um, to feel secure. And then the the people who do not have enough are paying the price, over and over again, just to try to get enough.
1: So you're talking about individuals, but what happens when a country does that?
0: Ah, that's a great question. You know, one thing that we've seen recently, China, I think, is is an especially bad offender as far as stockpiling. I mean, certainly countries do stockpile. It's important to do that in case there are, you know, circumstances that they need to tap into that. Um, And they're supposed to stockpile across a number of things. There is a point at which the scale tips, and it's too much. So in China, um, I think by about mid-2022, China um, was said to hold 69% of the world's corn reserves, 60% of the world's rice, uh, and 51% of its wheat for one country.
1: And who, and who was uh, who? Where those stats come from?
0: That's that the from? U.S. Department of Agriculture.
1: Um, okay, so yeah, pretty
0: pretty. I mean, and, I think, yeah, we can hang our hat on it.
1: But China, it, it's very well known that China depends on food and energy. It has to import a great deal of its food and energy. I think it's like eighty percent of its energy and sixty or seventy percent of its food. So maybe it's understandable why they're stockpiling, but coming out of COVID and then coming into this this new economic situation, other countries are probably going to have to start doing the same thing too, right? And that's going to just put more pressure on global supply chain, leading to higher food prices and hurting those countries and individuals who can't afford and play. We talked about Europe having deeper pockets. China's got deep pockets. Japan's got deep pockets. India's got deepish pockets. It can do it. Um but it's sort of like these players are going to sort of nuzzle out these other countries, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, think about what are the countries that do, do not necessarily have the ability to stockpile? I mean, there's plenty of countries that don't even have the ability to keep enough in the country. I mean, you'd probably know better than... Like Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, countries that... I, I, Egypt is like 80%. They, they Their food imports are like 80%. Um, and there's a lot of other countries that are depending upon those. Um But there's also, I think there's a lot of countries that when they were getting into the global system, uh, became just focused on one particular product because it was profitable because of the efficiencies of scale. So whether you were making a fruit or a nut or a grain, but now they have to turn around and become more, I think, these countries have to have to turn around. You're seeing this Latin America, Africa, and in Asia, uh, you're seeing countries having to turn around in Find alternate sources or alternate ways to to procure those uh, foodstuffs, which is going to put more pressure because they're going to need more fertilizer. Uh, and I know it starts to sound like it.
0: Yeah. It's. I mean, it, it all kind of second verse same as the first. Like it. It does all pretty much wind up sort of circling back around. And I think one other thing that that I want to touch on is something we saw in COVID as well, which is with our supply chain being compromised as far as, you know, there was no air travel. You know, what we see with Russia and Ukraine now is that travel by sea, um, especially for shipping by sea, is is limited or more hazardous, um, certainly more complicated. Trains are great if you're on land, but that doesn't help you much if you have to cross an ocean. You know, all of the the ways that we are used to having our supply chain deliver what we need when we need it uh it's a really well honed you know things arrive just in time to reduce the number of warehouses that you have to pay for so that you can just move things along it's this you know really balanced system but if something goes wrong it goes quite wrong but we saw an increase in trucking at least in the u.s um which again put more ethanol (laughs) on the road um you know, so we saw an increase in gas, but also those truckers. You know, they were considered essential employees. There weren't enough of them, and they couldn't get more trained fast enough for people who wanted to go out on the road when there was a pandemic. Um, so even even the um, safety boards started lifting the limits of hours truckers could drive before they had to rest, which made the roads, I would argue, a more dangerous place. But all of the things of like, they have to take a rest here or at so many hours uh, they basically they lifted it and they just said, drive as much as you can because there weren't enough people just like in grocery stores, there were not enough people to, to run the grocery store and that led, again, to another issue with supply chain. You couldn't get stuff on the shelves because there was nobody to put them there. And so once you, you know, and, and thank you to all the grocery store workers and the truckers out there, you guys, literally lifesavers. But you see that as soon as like one, one avenue that we have for shipping decreases, it puts additional strain on the others. And that has environmental consequences. It has safety consequences. It has all sorts of consequences. You know, so, so I know this, this episode has been kind of a downer. I think we can say, are there any signs of hope? What can we look at that might be a sign that things aren't, you know, aren't going quite as badly as they seem? Or, or what can we, you know, what is something we, if we see it, we know things might be heading in a good direction?
1: One thing that I would look for is to see about alternate sources of um, alternate sources of food and alternate sources of fertilizer. And there are some hopes. I think that they were talking about that there, there, there's deposits, untapped deposits in North Africa of phosphates. Um, countries that have the ability that produce a lot of natural gas can mm-hmm. make nitrates and. There just happens to be a country called us, U.S., yep. that can do that. Um, and I've been waiting to see, uh, because what do you do? if you if, Because sometimes you have just so much excess natural gas in the drilling process. you know What do you do with that stuff when you end up burning it off? Well, you know tap into that and try using that for nitrates. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of our natural gas actually is used for other purposes besides just LNG. I mean, a lot of it is used industrially. Um, but if you can start to see, I think, a, a, an uptick in the production to to offset what we lost with Ukraine and Russia, I think that you would start to see that. And if you and I have hope because humanity has had the ability to sort of adapt to changes. And so if you lose one one particular source of material, you find someplace else or something else to do. So it's very possible that there could be a new player who comes in who's able to take over for wheat, uh, cooking oils, um, and things like that. Or we globally begin to adapt to a new source that we hadn't usually done, or we discover an old source, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly we're like, oh, suddenly polyunsaturated fats look great again. Sure, it's bad for your heart, but maybe we find something else that we do
0: Yeah, but now we can Um, transplant pig hearts, so we don't need to worry about that.
1: Poor pigs, I know. Poor pigs. The chickens are happy. The chickens will be happy, though. Yeah. I know. I was just going to say, though, that if... If there can be, let's just say that we have a couple of years where we have, uh, we don't have major, uh, major climatic, uh, problems. We don't have major wars that are targeting things. It is possible for the world to sort of adjust and to try to, you know, to, to meet up for this. Um, and if you start seeing, because out of food insecurity eventually though leads to famine and famine is, I mean, really bad so we really want to be I think as a as a world we have to start looking at ways to try to offset that because even if it's not happening in your backyard it's going to affect you eventually Uh, you know some of the things that were driving all that mass migration into Europe and a lot of things that drive a lot of mass migration to the United States are economically driven imagine what would happen if it was famine driven Mm. Um, it's not about opportunity it's about survival and I would say that food insecurity, it has the potential of basically increasing instability everywhere and decreasing the value of a lot of other things everywhere. And that's that's the one difference versus a lot of other things.
0: I think that gets to a really important point, um, which is, you know, all of this, you know, the, everything is intertwined. So food security is energy security is political security. Um, and stability, one thing that that research has consistently borne out is that uh, when there is an increase in food security, it strongly correlates with reductions in political instability. So the more secure your food system, the more secure your, your political stability, which is, you know, I think something that is a win win for everybody. Um, conversely, though, increases in food security also increase the frequency of political protests. So the French will be very happy to to see this. But for countries like France, like the U.S., that run on you know that are that are either democratic or republic, where protest is a healthy sign, where it means that democracy is working to see protests. Uh, that's great news for authoritarian regimes. Um, that is not necessarily great news. Um, they lose control. Uh, so food security doesn't necessarily work in their favor. So I would expect that given that we've got levels of food insecurity right now, we will see continued political instability. Democracy really does run on donuts.
1: I'm going to put that on a T-shirt. I think that's fantastic. Um <laughs> I would, I would add to that and say that one of the reasons why countries like China have to stockpile so much food is, is that historically, uh, if the population, uh, runs into, uh, food shortages, it leads to social unrest and in a country the size of China. Social unrest rapidly leads to challenges to the central authority. And mm-hmm. historically, it's always led a new regime change. And, uh, the government there identifies, the Chinese Communist Party identifies its well-being as being the number one thing. You know, Without us, really, nothing else really matters. So I think that's one of their maintaining internal control is important and with food. And I think in a lot of other countries here in the United States, maybe we haven't seen it in generations. But I would suggest for people who are not familiar, it's like you know, there's lots of really great literature and even things on YouTube where you can look at. What people did during the depression, or did during rationing during the Second World War. There's things they talk about in the United States. Victory gardens. It's more interesting to look at things, looking at uh, things in the UK. And I remember traveling in the UK and people talking about when I was in Europe in the 80s and the 90s, and there was still a level of rationing that was going on, and there's still the, the repercussions from the war were still happening. Coming from the United States, I think you know we had pretty much had shut off. The war pretty much was in the rearview mirror by the end of 48, 49, Mm -hmm. you know, and we were in a different kind of world. But understanding that that's more the reality, the historical reality, is knowing that these types of things are more that. So having expectations of of having to deal with less, um, having expectations that we may be looking at an age of austerity, Mm -hmm. not tremendous austerity. And by the way, I want to talk a little bit about chocolate and coffee, if we have a moment. Yeah, absolutely. That's Okay. Go for it. Uh, we're just going to take a sidebar here. Well, it just occurred to me that here in the West, I think, especially I think here in the U.S., coffee has become such an important part of our life, and chocolate has become so intertwined. It, it used to be a luxury at one point. And now it's just seen as just something so commonplace. You don't give it a second thought. But if you think about where chocolate and coffee predominantly comes from, yeah, we used to talk about blood diamonds, and I used to talk about no, it's blood beans. It's you know coffee beans and chocolate beans. You're you, and every time you buy a bar of chocolate or drink a cup of coffee, you're funding, you know, you know human trafficking and violence and and drug cartels and war all over the world. And we don't think about those things at all. You know about how intertwined those things are. Uh, but for the majority of our co- and, and and I know I don't think people th- they want to think that they're getting their stuff that's responsibly sourced and people will tell them no don't worry this coffee is responsibly sourced they but will
0: pay honest, a premium not- for their fair trade labeled coffee absolutely
1: absolutely absolutely but it's gotten to a point though that you know there's the expectations of questioning i mean we we question things about you know we talk about chickens this is this we know is the chicken episode i guess yeah but i mean we we want to know more we're more concerned about things like well are chickens being fairly treated you know mm-hmm. you know uh, we're having questions about, you know, uh, is this is the is our food being uh, produced health in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's another question. That just I, there's a lot of questions. I think I guess to a certain point where I don't think that people really want to ask too much about these things.
0: Certainly, but, you literally don't necessarily want to know how the sausage is made. But right, I, right, again, exactly. I, or the chocolate. Yeah. I do think that there is that major distinction. People who can question. Uh, the origin of their beans. Who can question, you know, what whether the animals, the chickens, were treated well as they made their way to processing, or their eggs make their way into cartons. People who do not have enough, they're not necessarily asking those questions. Or if they do, it's irrelevant to to their behavior following. Because they're still going to buy what they need to buy and eat what they need to eat to survive. So, uh, I think, you know, one thing I hope, I hope people will take away from this is really investigating our motives of, you know, why are we looking for certain labeling? Why are we looking for, um, you know, to, to somehow restrict or to, you know, to, be a part of a, a, a select group and have this signify who we are and what we believe in. I also think it's important to consider if if your situation was different, because Lord knows things change. If you did not have enough tomorrow, what would the questions that you'd be asking be? And how do they differ from the questions you're you're asking right now about, you know, is this is this oat milk organic? Um, you know, or were the oats treated fairly before they, <laughs> they went to, to be milked? Um, I don't know a lot about oat milk, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think ideally people listening to this will think a little bit more deeply about their relationship with food as well as their government's relationship with food and their culture's relationship with food.
1: It's funny. Earlier, you mentioned you quoted or the apocryphal story of Marie Antoinette, "Let them eat cake." Mm. And it's funny because that's the French Revolution came from uh, an overwhelming rise in wheat prices that drove the poor into the streets. I mean, revolutions usually have to be have to be led by the you know the middle or the top, but you need a spark. And one thing that I was I was reading something just a couple of days ago about food uh, food insecurity, and it said that inevitably, if, if it's allowed to fester food insecurity leads to revolution. Uh, so, I mean, if, if anything, mm. people should just be aware that societies are built upon... Generally, societies run... Uh, and Every 200, 250 years, they usually run into a point where they... In, inequity and inequality get to such a point that there has to be a change in the system. So if you're looking for a... Lack of a better word, if you're looking for a canary in the coal mine, mm.
0: uh, you know, and we food are.
1: insecurity... <laughs> right food insecurity is one of those things that you want to look for uh so that's the thing like if you're looking for a red flag it's this is one of those red flags and so see how people are dealing with those types of things and if you feel that you know people aren't doing enough about it individually you can do something about it by getting involved and talking to people and getting it into the public space and it does it does work um, and i think that because uh, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no matter where you are on the economic spectrum, I think this is something that touches everyone because everybody eats. Um, not everybody drives a car, but everybody eats food. And you have to eat every day. So, um, so li- making sure that the system is robust enough and also making sure that the system is uh, inclusive enough. And I'm not a social justice warrior, but I'm using this language uh, because it does make sense. In it matters, yeah. And I think if security. you're
0: going to be prepping and you're going to be stockpiling, what is enough? Because there, there are some really damaging effects of doing too much, of stockpiling too much. Um, so really understanding that balance of enough, I think, is is going to be critical moving forward, not just for you and and yours, but also for humanity as a whole.
1: If I could just make one final point, and then something I used to say to a lot of people in my previous jobs when things were getting dark, um, I always like to quote uh, Winston Churchill and what he said. uh, His last great speech before the House of Commons was, do not despair. So I always like to tell people, despite all of this, do not despair.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's still hope on
1: the horizon, so... It, but forewarned is forearmed, so just you know, take these things and go with them. And, uh, but don't come out of this and thinking it's the end of the world. Not yet. So we still have a lot. No. Yeah, we still have a lot more space.
0: So. <laughs> that's next episode. Um, well, that's right. Next. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. I think this was certainly a heavy topic, but uh, a really important one to to talk through. So, uh, so thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. But if anybody has any questions or comments um, that they would like to share, please do reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Of course, all views are our own. Um, Neither one of us is necessarily an expert on chickens. I just pretend to be one. But we really appreciate you joining us on this journey and hope that you have found some additional questions to ask yourself when you're at the grocery store.
1: Take care, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of The Canary Group. If you like us, please give us five stars on your favorite listening app.
1: Have something you'd like us to dig into? You could reach us at info at
0: You can also find us online at www.canarygroup.org and on social media at canarygroup.org.